Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back. One of the reasons I love doing this show so much is I get to share history with the public. For me, history is fun and engaging and personal, but I understand everyone has to make their own connection to it, and people connect to history in many different ways. Some love to watch documentaries, while others love to attend museums and even more love to listen to podcasts. Public history is such a broad topic, and I wanted to learn more about the field and how one navigates the many ways in which someone may become a public historian. So when I was introduced to somebody active in the public history space, I jumped at the chance to have a conversation. Holly Snaith is a historian who specializes in the 20th century U.S. history. After graduating with a degree in history from the University of Florida, Holly moved to Hyde Park, New York. There, she interned at the FDR Library, worked with the National Park Service on a historical restoration project at Eleanor Roosevelt's home, and served as the program assistant for the Girls' Leadership Worldwide Program, an annual summer program hosted by the Eleanor Roosevelt Center. We sat down to chat over Zoom, so apologies ahead of time for any dips in audio quality. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hey everyone, welcome. With me today is Holly Snaith, historian at large. Holly has worked with the Richard Nixon Foundation, the National Park Service, and several others in bringing history to the people. Welcome, Holly. Hi, Alicia, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so excited to have you on, given your experience in the realm of history that I think many are unaware of or, or at least unaware that they're participating in, and that's public history. And so while we start our conversation, you know, let's just start with the basics. And how would you define public history? So this is how I think of public history. Um, public history is not doing history in public it is presenting history to the public. That's kind of how I think of it. So a public historian applies their knowledge and skills to work in museums, in archival institutions, historic sites, government agencies, or even in the media, and also as independent contractors, which is what I've been doing for a long time. So basically outside of the realm of the ac academics and working in public universities and whatnot, because I wanted to work in history from the time I was in high school. And so I interned at FDR's Little White House when I was 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to do work in, in history, but I didn't want to be a professor, so to say. Mm -hmm. uh, so public history is a very broad term that encompasses many things, but that's kind of my take on what public history is. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, po podcasts, museums, these are all things that are, are of, of the public history realm. Anything that we can do to get history into the face of, of the public is something that's usually been my, my definition. <laughs> Make it interesting for people to want to learn about. Mm -hmm. That's the catch. 
Yes. Yes. Technology and how it evolves and whatnot. So we just have to keep it, keep it interesting for people, especially younger people. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And so, you know, touching on that and and touching on making it interesting for young, younger generations, how can public history help us in our understanding of the past? So I love this description of public history. Public history uses the past to illuminate the present. So basically bringing these historical events to the here and now, whether it be in the form of a podcast or a museum exhibit or a documentary, just some way to make it relevant so we understand the story of where we came from and how we got to where we are now and where we hope to go in the future. So I think more of um, museum exhibits because I've worked with different exhibits over the years and telling this historical story through the use of visuals like images, artifacts, historic footage, just helping us relate to something that happened a long time ago. Chances are it happened, you know, way before we were even born. So mm-hmm. just that that connection to the present. Yeah. I think I've always um, found that whenever I don't know what the heck is happening in current world events and in the current state of the nation, I tend to look backwards to see, okay, have we gone through something like this before? And I find that, you know, uh, ironically, very grounding and, you know, okay, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've done this before. (laughs) Something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And so um, you have had some pretty envious experiences in your career. So what was your favorite public history project? My favorite one was probably the largest one I've ever done. And that is the Val Kill Photo Restoration Project. So for those that don't know, Val Kill is the Eleanor Roosevelt National Historic Site in Hyde Park, New York. And I was up there for two years. I worked as an independent contractor with the National Park Service. And I'm going to try to explain this to you because it was my job to find the original photographs that Eleanor Roosevelt had up in her home at the time of her death in 1962. So I was looking at a basically a photo album of black and white photos from 1962 that an archivist took. He went to Valkyrie right after Eleanor died and took these photos. So I had this photo album and I was zooming in with a magnifying glass. (laughs) Look at the photographs that she had on her wall, try to identify who the pictures were of or if it was a painting or something, and then go to the archives of the FDR library or the National Park Service and try to find that exact photo. Because Val Kill had been in the hands of Eleanor's youngest son, but he and his wife had this big auction and they auctioned everything off. So, so much went to the family and then so much went to just different people. So it was my job to find it and then get it back up at Val Kill. <laughs> it was like a treasure hunt. It really was. And um, I got to talk to many members of the Roosevelt family through doing this and finding those photos. And we got, I think around a hundred photos total. Oh, wow in Val Kill. And then I did the research and wrote captions for every single photo. Mm-hmm. So if it was like a picture of Eleanor's son, Elliot, I did a little bio on him and, um, or President Mackenzie King 
of Canada wrote on him, Winston Churchill, all kinds of people. So basically that was that, that project. Yeah. And so you mentioned you talked to several of the Roosevelt family members. Did, did you get any um, cool little anecdotes in your discussions or from the grandkids just (laughs) about their grandmother? And it's just, you know, to them, that was their grandmother. That was, that was it. She wasn't the Eleanor Roosevelt that we think of today, the first lady of the world, you know, she was just Grandmere to them. And Mm -hmm. No, just those really personal stories that I heard. And so many of them since then, this was a few years ago, a few of them have passed away. And so I really cherish those memories that they shared with me, for sure. And you know, it's really grat- what's really gratifying is to know, it's, strangely enough, I haven't been up to Hyde Park since all of the photos, since the National Park Service got the frames and everything for all the photos. So I haven't seen this whole project in totality. And I have people that tell me about it and seeing those photos. And so, you know, it's really gratifying to know that as long as Val Kill is open to the public, that my work will be up there for people to see. And so how do you approach preparing public exhibits? What's, what's your, what's your modus operandi? So this is what I think about the two S's. First, I have to know what story I'm going to tell. And then I think about the space with which I have to tell it. So for example, when I was doing a uh, exhibit on Pat Nixon at the University of Southern California, the story was about her ties to USC. And I knew that I only had a few cabinets to work with in putting up these, these images and the panels explaining, you know, what the photos are and, and basically just telling the story about why USC really mattered to Pat Nixon. Because, well, Pat Nixon was our first first lady to have a master's degree. So we were really um, proud of that and just trying to really just show how, um, you know, she was always so connected to USC and that family. And then we were so proud that they were honoring her with a scholarship and whatnot. So I, I knew that I had a very limited space and it doesn't matter if you're working on an exhibit at the Louvre, you still have so much space to work with and you don't want to cram too much in because Mm -hmm. that's just for people to take in and really comprehend. But then you also don't want it to be too sparse and too bare looking because it's telling a story. Nice. And do you ever find yourself like struggling of, you know, oh, I really want to include this, but this is super important. And, you know, how do you make those judgment calls? Sure. So it, it goes back to the story and the overall story that you're telling with the exhibit. And that means that not every artifact that's included is going to be big and flashy and impressive. And that's not to say, look, I, I've been in museums where I've seen some really cool Cadillacs included, right? And you love that. Like <laughs> you love flashy cars or big, something really fancy and shiny. That's great too. But it's all about the own unique story that that artifact tells. And you want people to walk through the exhibit and go, wow, look at that. I had no idea that that little thing meant such and such to like the Roosevelt family Bible and what that meant to FDR being sworn in with his hand on that Bible. Like everything tells its own story. Madeline Albright, I did her, um, I worked on her Read My Pens exhibit 
at the FDR library back when I was interning there, every pin had its own story. So you just have to think about the overall uh, message of every single thing that you include in an exhibit. And do you prefer to work in smaller spaces or do you like, do you like bigger, more grandiose exhibits? It depends. I think I really liked doing the Pat Nixon thing because I, I only had so much space, but again, it was so clear what we were trying to tell with that exhibit. And it also made it a little bit more cozy and more quaint and a more personal viewing experience for people to be in just basically one room in this one building. But, you know, it, it just depends on, on the place and the space. And so you're talking about like identifying artifacts and stuff. Do you like map out your, you know, like when you were doing the Pat Nixon, did you say, okay, I have X amount of cabinets. This is my story. I want this to look, I want this cabinet to say this. I want this cabinet. Or do you just find that the artifacts kind of speak to you and and you kind of plug them in as you're developing that story? With the Pat Nixon exhibit, it was images. Okay. So we tried to do it in a chronological order. Basically, so like the first cabinet were pictures of Pat Nixon during her childhood and then during her college days at USC. Then we had some of her at USC uh, in the 50s when her husband was vice president. And then we had more of her in the Rose Parade with John Wayne and his wife in, I think it was like 1973. And so she was first lady at that point. So it was it was in a chronological order for that. Okay. But not the exhibit is that way, of yeah. course. Everything's a little bit different. And so you just, you touched on, on Madeline Albright and I'm not going to lie. I kind of geeked out a bit when I saw you had the opportunity to greet the former secretary of state. So what was it like being in the presence of such a historic figure? <laughs> oh my God. It was so memorable. <laughs> Let me tell you, okay. I was an intern at the FDR library. So the director of the library said, hey, Holly, we want you to be one of the first people to greet Secretary Al Albright when she arrives. And I looked around, you know, I thought she was talking to somebody else. I was like, I'm an intern. I'm as low on the totem pole as you can go. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to do it? But she, she was telling the truth. She really did. And she meant it. So I remember just I think I had too much coffee that day, which is really bad for my personality. I don't need any more caffeine than what I already <laughs> I remember going in the bathroom and just making sure my hair looked good and had my lipstick on and all that. And I wasn't really, I don't get starstruck to meet people, I guess, because I've, I've met some really impressive people through my career, but I just wanted her to be impressed with me. Like this mm -hmm. young girl who loved history and the Roosevelt's and when she shook my hand, we spoke for a few moments and, you know, her, she had beautiful blue eyes and she just made this kid, I was a kid, feel really important for mm -hmm. those moments. And um, she was kind, generous, funny, spunky. She was so smart. I think we, we all know that. And just really a dedicated public servant. And then another funny thing was I ended up being filmed by a local news station like standing right behind her so I was on the news standing behind Madeline and I thought you know I may never be famous but this is as good as it gets 
I feel like that's every history nerd's like dream scenario. Be like, oh, I'm going to be forever memorialized behind somebody more important than me. (laughs) Get the news. That's it. (laughs) And so your uh, website says that you fell in love with presidential history. So I'm curious, what about the presidencies and presidential administrations drew you in? Well, the first presidency that I remember studying was in middle school and it was the uh, Kennedy presidency. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a paper on why the Kennedy, those three years of the Kennedy presidency was compared to Camelot. So King Arthur, Queen Guinevere, Sir Lancelot, all that stuff. And, And of course that's mythology and idealized in many ways. But, um, I just remember, I think at that time, being 12 years old or something, just being really impressed by the glitz and the glamour and the arts and all of that, that encompassed the Kennedy presidency, Um, both President Kennedy and and Mrs. Kennedy, of course, brought so much to that, that time to make it very special. And then in high school, I went to Warm Springs, Georgia, which is where FDR had the little White House. Mm. And he went there in 1924 to receive treatments for polio because he had heard that the natural spring waters had like healing powers and FDR ended up building two homes there. And he started the first polio hospital in the country in warm Springs. So I think I like learning about just different adverse situations that these Mm -hmm. presidents go through and how it makes them become the leader that they are. And, um, you know, FDR definitely with the polio and spending so much time in the rural South, that definitely impacted how he viewed social and economic issues because he grew up in a very patrician family in New York state, very well off. He did not know poverty really until he came down South and saw the plight of the farmers and whatnot. So that definitely opened up his eyes and led to so many New Deal programs. Mm -hmm. And then even Richard Nixon, you know, he was vice president during the Eisenhower years, but then he lost to Kennedy in 1960. He lost in 1962, the gubernatorial race in California. They thought he was done, but he wasn't, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he came And that definitely affected who he was as a leader as well. So that's kind of what I like studying. Okay. That makes sense. I, you know, one of the things I did after graduating from getting my degree in history was I was, I decided I was going to read a biography on every president because, you know, why not? Power to you. That is impressive (laughs) than I've ever done. (laughs) And, um, you know, I've always, the, the reason I think I always find them so fascinating and and feel like they even the lesser known presidents deserve kind of their due diligences it's a it's a study of like uh, of humanity and meeting the moment and leadership right and um I've, I've always found even if i greatly disagree with who they are as a human being that you know they what 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 mark they made on the country and what how they propelled that country forward and or backwards and um what that meant for kind of the remaining populace, you know? Sure. Yeah, definitely. And that's true. But, and even with the first ladies, cause I've studied 
first ladies, honestly, just as much as I have presidents, but you know, they go through their own trials mm-hmm. and in life. And, and so it's just how those characters are shaped and what, what shapes them. And, and then ultimately how that leads to the legacy that they have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then shifting gears a little bit back to public history. So you, you have a lot of experience with creating public exhibits and working in the, in the public sphere. So what are some skills you feel public historians need to be successful? First of all, always have a passion for what you're doing. Like that really comes through. It doesn't matter if you're working in the archives and you hardly see people at all during the day, or if you're, you're working, you know, out there as a docent or something or curator in the museums and you interact with people daily, you need to have a passion for what you're doing. Um, It's, it depends on what you go into, of course, whether you're working at a historic site or podcasting media stuff or museums. Um, But what I found was I learned how to be patient and diligent while also trying to meet a deadline. Hmm. So that, I know that sounds incredibly difficult because you're like, time is ticking, we've got to go. But you have to be meticulous with your work, with your research, with your writing, with finding those those artifacts that you want to include. And then when you're talking about curating, there's so much work that goes into the whole curation and setting up the exhibit. It's it's very hard. I remember the first time I I did anything really hands-on was with the Madeline Albright exhibit at the FDR library. And we were stapling the fabrics to the panels and we all had to get like tetanus shots (laughs) (laughs) because we had nails and stuff in our hands and we're going like, this is dirty work. This is not glamorous at all. So um, having that attention to detail is also very important. And, mm-hmm. and um, again, with exhibits, being able to visualize and plan it out, kind of see how you want it to be when it's all done. I like those, those, uh, those tips. And so what would your advice be to someone looking into public history as a potential career? Well, I just... I think public historians don't get enough credit (laughs) for what they do, because I remember when I was working at the FDR library and someone, just a visitor, I was docenting. So I was talking to visitors and telling them these historical facts and whatnot. And this person walked up to me and said, so what Ivy League did you get your PhD from? And I was just kind of taken aback by that. Like, I can't be doing this without having a PhD from an Ivy League. That's not mm-hmm. what qualifies a person to, to be a historian mm-hmm. because it is that perception that historians are simply professors and a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to being a historian and you can do whatever you want, however way you want to do it. You have to do what's right for you. Honestly, you don't really have to answer to anyone. And <laughs> And for a few years, I did try to do it the right way, but then I found out that wasn't fulfilling to me. So I did it, did it my way, basically. And um, so again, it depends on on what they want to do. But I say, just 
have that goal, have that vision and then go for it. Basically. Very nice. Right. And are there any projects that you are currently working on that you can share about? Well, it's been a busy year. This year has been very busy so far. I have been focusing on my writing for the past couple of years now. And um, now I live in, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. So I've been researching a lot of country music history and, and legendary country singers and whatnot. But I also still publish the presidential history and entertainment history. I also work on that. So this year alone, I've published articles on Loretta Lynn, Harry Truman, Charlie Pride, and country music duos. So just like this whole broad spectrum of articles. And I'm working on one now on um, Dottie West, who is a country Western singer-songwriter. And actually her granddaughter will be contributing to this article as well. So that's Aww. very cool to have these different generations include their input. You know, I've I realize now I've connected with so many grandchildren of these famous people, like going back to the Roosevelt and speaking to their grandchildren and now country music singers and their grandchildren who are continuing the legacy. So I just love that. And I've got some more cool stuff in the works and um, stay tuned. That's what I say. (laughs) And are there any big goals that you're working on in your your realm. I know you're, you, you go all over the map. You're very creative in terms of how you access and engage in public history. Definitely. I would love, I I want to write books Mm -hmm. in the future. Um, Of course, finding the time as we're working and going through life and doing everything else, finding the time to really sit down and do the research and then talk to your sources and whatnot. That's challenging, but that's definitely a goal of mine. And basically just continuing to engage with people. And I, and I have to say, as I gain more followers through my writing, I have heard from people all over the world. Like I wrote an article this year on Pearl S. Buck, the author, and she wrote The Good Earth. And someone in China reached out to me and said, hey, I learned so much from your article on Pearl S. Buck. I would like to quote it in a paper that I'm doing. Do I have your permission? And then they were just sharing stories. And then I've heard from people in France, Wales, Scotland, somebody that read like an article on Loretta Lynn or FDR or something, and they really took something from what I wrote. And that's just the most gratifying thing. So continuing to build those connections and and just my audience and hear from people and, and really find out, you know, what they value and what they appreciate and what they love about history and whatnot. So those are kind of some of my goals. Hey, those are great goals. I, I always uh, tell people that I, ever since starting this podcast and, and re- rediscovering or recommitting to history, because um, I was I was out of the history game for a while, um, I feel like I found my people, you know, just yeah. we can geek out about just random factoids that I tell my husband and he looks at me, he's like, uh-huh, sure, sure, honey. <laughs> It was a huge jump for me because I went from working at two presidential libraries. I was in my early 20s when I did that. So I did that. Those were two big dreams of mine. And then I was transitioning, kind of figuring out what was next at such a young age in life because the story wasn't over, right? It was like, you have to keep going. You have to find something new. And so I, I kind of jumped into country music history, not... I'm from the South, so I grew up listening to this music and whatnot, and it was kind of a connection to to my past to do that again. But 
not knowing how my followers on LinkedIn or social media would respond to that going like, why is she changing? You know, right. <laughs> why is she doing this? We don't want to read this or something, but it just like grew. It actually enhanced my audience and, and I love it. You know, if you love the history, that's really what matters. If you love what you're doing and what you're researching. Yes, I, I definitely, there's some old, uh, old adage that says, you know, if you're passionate or love what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life or something like that. And I, I mean, I know it's hard and difficult and all of that, but. <laughs> that is true, but we got to work and pay the bills too. So <laughs> yes, definitely. All right. And so as we're wrapping up, where can my listeners find more information about you and the work that you do and maybe any future projects that you might have in the pipeline, um, you know, or when you score that book deal and you're getting ready to publish your manuscript, where can they find you? Uh, www.hollysnaith.com is my website. And there you can find all my articles. You can view my portfolio and the projects that I've worked on, including the Val Kill photo project. There's actually the National Park Service has a whole website dedicated to those pictures. So you can view the pictures by room like Eleanor's living room or the office and click on every photo and read those captions that I wrote. So you can do it all virtually as well. You don't have to go to the site. So that is really cool. And then I am on LinkedIn and Instagram and I publish on different publications on Medium as well. Awesome. And that can be found on my website. So awesome. Well, thank you so much, Holly, uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. And peeps, be sure to look up Holly Snaith. She's got a lot of really cool things. Um, so definitely go, go check her out. And again, thank you so much for coming on today, Holly. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Really oh. appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks again to Holly for spending her time with me. To learn more about her and her work, head on over to the show notes where I've linked her site. Thanks, peeps. I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.